Christians. Well, as Christians growing up in the 20th century, the word exile or, so, or sojourner is foreign to us. An exile is someone who has been expelled from his native country, and a sojourner is one who lives someplace temporarily. And the ideas actually overlap. Um, in the Old Testament, the people of God were exiled to Babylon and therefore lived as sojourners in that land. Um, these ideas don't really apply to Americans, or do they? The New Testament is addressed to the church as a people living in exile and therefore living as sojourners. That's what Peter says in the first few verses. Paul reminds Christians of all ages that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, he writes, Brothers, and I'm, I'm translating it a little bit different than some of the versions, but brothers, may you be imitating me. The idea is that it's one of, of, going, of, a, of a progression. It's going on. It's ongoing. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the, their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, or maybe even indeed, though our citizenship is in heaven and from... <coughs> From there we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And again, Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 2 Timothy 2, 1-7 Well, as the church moves into the 21st century, she faces challenges. From one quarter, we see those who busy themselves with arguing for our rights. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing that we should become, you know, uh, passive in everything and not, not say anything politically or socially. Um, the question is really one of focus. According to the passage just quoted, Christians need to understand that our citizenship is not here. This is not our final home. It's in heaven. And therefore we should not have divided loyalties. Christ is the head and Lord of the church. And he sets the agenda, not the culture. Therefore, the church needs to consider the fact that Christians in the West may face persecution, be it mild or severe. 
Are we prepared for that? Moreover, how does the loss of our cultural standing affect the commission Christ gave to the church? Are we not called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them? But if we are suffering under oppression and persecution, how are we to fulfill that commission? Well, Peter answers that question for us, at least in part. He focuses both on how we are to behave and how we are to proclaim the gospel in the context of exile. Elliot Clark has observed in his book, Evangelism as Exiles, I've observed a growing anxiety in American Christianity about our changing place in the world. There's a rolling undercurrent of fear and unease about what the future will hold for us as believers in Jesus. Leaders in various spheres of our culture seem to be conspiring against Christ and His church, threatening our way of life. So we wonder what our experience will be as, as a shrinking minority. And that's not all. We also wonder how we'll accomplish our mission without the status and privileges we've come to cherish and even expect. Therefore, this morning we're going to consider, we're going to begin considering First Peter because he addresses the church as elect exiles in verse 1. And he talks about the trouble that the church faces for he says in verse chapter 1 verse 6 in this rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the test so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to the, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 2 and verse 12, he writes, well, in verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the, on the day of visitation. In chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He says, but if when you do good and suffer, if, for if you endure, this is, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now, some people read that as following in the steps of Christ and living as He lived. Well, that's true in part, but the focus in the passage is on suffering. We are to suffer even as Christ suffered. In chapter 3 and verse 1, He talks to the wives and tells them to be subject to their own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives talking to um, others. He says, who is there to harm you? Verse 13. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's the famous verse that people always appeal to uh, regarding apologetics, and it's not wrong to appeal to that. Just remember that it's set in the context of suffering. That's the context that it's set in, into. He wants us to have a good conscience so that when we are slandered, um, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And again, he uses Christ as an example. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so Christ is our example. Chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This goes on and on through the epistle. We could say the purpose of the epistle is for uh, believers to understand how they are to live um, in a world uh, that is either oppressing or persecuting them and to do so while they are proclaiming the gospel. In other words, they're to proclaim the gospel in the context of suffering. And it has to, the proclamation must uh, be consistent with our lives. Or we could put it this way, our lives must be consistent with the proclamation of the gospel. So if we're going to declare the gospel of peace, we have to ask ourselves, are we people of peace? If we're going to declare the gospel as, um, as the grace of God, well, are we gracious people? How do we speak? How do we treat others? Uh, that's so important for us. Um, uh, this Wednesday we'll bury my son. And um, our hopes for him being a Christian were very low. We have a little bit of, we have some glimpse of hope that we're holding on to. And that we're holding on to it with all of our lives. But as people put up, people put up things about my son, about him, how he treated other people, he made me proud. Because as he treated, he treated other people with grace and kindness, and he did it over and over again. And there are testimonies all over Facebook page that's dedicated to him of people who just can't stop talking. Uh, kindly of him. Um, there are people who even quit where he worked because they they don't want to work for another manager because the other manager is not as kind as him. I mean, if that my son who has this glimmer of hope can be that way, then I say to myself, how should I then live? Um, and we all need to be that way. So as we begin our study of Peter this morning, I want us to consider some important details in the first few verses that open his letter. First, I want to, you to consider Peter himself, who he was, what he was, and what authority he had. Second, I want us to consider those to whom he wrote, where they lived and who they were, and the significance of his 
epistle. So as we begin this morning, let's, uh, let's pray to the Lord our God. This uh, prayer uh, is actually from a hymn that is attributed to uh, John Calvin. It is part of the, uh, it's part of the um, Geneva Psalter that he approved of. And uh, we've sung the hymn before, but it really, is a, it really is a prayer. Let's pray. We greet thee who our sure Redeemer art, our only trust and Savior of our heart, who pain didst undergo for our poor sake, we pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. Thou art the King of mercy and of grace, reigning omnipotent in every place. So come, O King, and our whole being sway, shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Thou art the life by which alone we live, and all our substance and our strength receive. Sustain us by thy faith and thy power, and give us strength in every trying hour. Our hope is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. Lord, give us peace and make us calm and sure that in thy strength we evermore endure. Amen. Amen. First of all then, Peter, who was he and what was he and what authority did he have? Well, first of all, he was a disciple. In fact, Peter is the first disciple and I think in every, every instance where you see him at least named with James and John, it's always Peter, James, and John. And uh, in the list of the apostles that Jesus selects in all in the Gospels, his name always is there first. And so as an example, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 and following, while Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishermen of men. And that's precisely what Christ did with Peter, the fisherman. In fact, all the fishermen became fishers of men. He was also first to confess Jesus as the Christ. Um, everybody else stood around when he asked the question, who do men say to I am? And they, oh, well, let's see. Some say that you're Elijah. and uh, Oh, yeah, and some say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what Herod believed. But in the midst of all of that, opinion, Simon responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there's a lot to what Jesus said to Peter and uh, we always kind of interpret it in a way to remove the papacy which is proper but I think we, when we do that we, we diminish the role of Peter and I'm going to point that out in a minute. Um, but um, 
He was the first to confess Jesus as the Christ. I had us read uh, Isaiah 6 this morning because God calls out, who, uh, who shall I send? Who will go for me? You know, and Isaiah says, here, I, I'm here, send me. The, the word apostle means one who is sent. Apostol, apostello means to send. And um, Jesus is really the embodiment of one who is sent. That's why he's called the uh, faith, he's called uh, the um, apostle and high priest of our faith. Why? Because he was sent by the Father. Uh, you, as, we read, as we read through the Gospel of John, we read over and over again that Jesus says, My Father sent me. He sent me. He sent me. And uh, so now Jesus is selecting those twelve that he will send um, in his name. And one of the first one mentioned always is, is Peter. And he's the first one to confess faith or confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's also the first to try and prevent Jesus' crucifixion. Right? Jesus tells them right after, right after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus says, well, you know, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be killed and going to be raised from the dead. And Peter, what does he say? <laughs> no way. Far be it from you. And uh, you're not going to, that's not going to happen to you. And so Jesus says to him, just right after that, you're, you know, you're, the, you know, going to build the church on what you just said. Oh, right after that, get behind me, Satan. The word Satan means an adver, an adversary, and that's uh, Jesus isn't calling him Satan like he's the devil. He's calling him Satan because he's an adversary. He's he's standing against what Christ is coming to do. You're a hindrance to me. That really gives us an idea of what Satan is. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he's the first to try and prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He's the first among the three. Remember I said Peter, James, and John, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Peter, uh, he's named first. Jesus goes on the mountain and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And uh, you'll remember the, the story Elijah and Moses are there with Jesus, and Peter's always the first to speak up. You know? Maybe that means he puts his foot in his mouth. <laughs> so Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or three tabernacles. I'll make, I'll make them here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Mark adds in his, uh, in his account, for Peter did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And Luke just says, um, not realizing what he was saying, he said that. So I can identify with Peter, you know. Uh, sometimes I don't know what to say and I speak right up. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he's a good, uh, Peter's a good example for us in more um, than one way. He's also the first to deny Christ. And um, this had to be um, heart-wrenching for the apostle. They were at the Mount of Olives, you recall, and, um, and Jesus says to them, uh, you will all fall away from me tonight because, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered, I love this, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Never. 
So Jesus says to him, Well, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, No, no, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Yep. Well, let's find out how that worked. So Jesus is taken to the courthouse. I think it's of uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. When I was in Israel, um, they actually... um, uh, below the, the city level because the city was destroyed and so there's the upper level of the Jerusalem that's there there's a lower level at least in parts of it and uh, in this one lower level we went down and they really believed that they excavated the, uh, the house of Caiaphas they believed that this was mm-hmm. the house of the Caiaphas the high priest mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting the courtyard is exposed and there's a wall and, and you can see inside and uh, with, I was there with my friend Thomas, the archaeologist. So he was explaining to me all this. And he says, you remember how, how Jesus was in there and they were examining him and Peter was standing out in the, in the courtyard. He said, um, he said and if, you know, if you look just right, if you look at this, you'll be able to see that it would be easy for Jesus to see Peter. And so after Peter denies uh, Jesus uh, three times after he's, the final one is, uh, the guy says, you are one of them too. And Peter says, man, I am not, you know. And uh, then when it comes, another man says, "And man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. And uh, the account in Luke says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Yes. Can you imagine that piercing um, gaze, mm-hmm. the, how that must have felt? Um, when that happened. So Peter is the first in a lot of ways, and uh, if you're interested in reading more about Peter, I could recommend Carol Uvalo's book she wrote about Peter. Um, I think she did a pretty good job with that. So I think you can still get it from Presbyterian Reformed, but um, those are just some examples. That's, that's who Peter was. He was an apostle sent uh, by Christ. That's, that's, he was Peter and he was the apostle, and uh, that's what he was. Uh, apostles were all given special authority um, when he called them Jesus you remember he gave them the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction um, apostles were commissioned to bear witness of the resurrection and uh, you know that's why today when people talk about them having apostles I think to myself have you read you know the scripture Amen. because um, the Acts of the Apostles is very clear. When they needed to pick um, an apostle to replace Judas, um, the, the qualification was, this is it. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Um, And that idea is reinforced in Hebrews 2. And uh, New Living Translation brings out the thought of Hebrews 2, I believe, the best. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So that reference to angels is a reference to the law given to Moses. So what makes us think, he continues, what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation 
that was first announced by the Lord Jesus Himself and then delivered to us by those who heard Him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving them signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, whatever He chose. Uh, so the apostles were a unique group of people. In fact, the signs were were uh, authenticating signs. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that um, he had the signs of a true apostle. They were performed among the people with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these things um, attached to the apostles. So to be an apostle, you needed to be someone who was sent by Christ. You needed to be someone who was um, who was there with Christ from the baptism of John till the till his ascension in heaven. And you had to witness to the resurrection. I don't know anybody today that can say they've uh, done that. So um, the apostles were special people. Uh, today we have so much, uh, it seems to me, uh, nonsense that that goes around the country and people are gullible and they fall for it all the time. Well, what did, what authority uh, did uh, Peter have? And we're going to look at this again in the last point as we look at the significance of his epistle. But what, what authority did uh, Peter have? Well, you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has revealed it. I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we believe the church has the authority of Christ behind her to, um, to uh, pronounce uh, people as either believers or unbelievers. When we excommunicate somebody, we declare to them that their behavior, their actions declare that they are unbelievers, but we have, we have hopes that that's not true. Um, so we believe the church in the session has the authority to make that kind of a de- declaration and we also believe that we have the authority to do that when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We fence the table and we can tell people you're not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. So in that sense, we as a session, have we hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But I want to read you this. I got this from Table Talk magazine uh, from Ligonier Ministries. And I, th- I found it interesting because it... It explains things a little more to us. And I quote, Protestantism has tended to say that the rock that Jesus means is Peter's confession, meaning that the church is built on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. Certainly we do not want to dispute the foundational nature of Peter's confession, but we need not reject the special significance of Peter for Peter himself in our rejection of the papacy. Peter did have a key role in the church as the first apostle to confess the faith, the first apostle to preach to the Jews on Pentecost, and the first apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter had a key role even if Jesus was not establishing a perpetual office for his successors with its own special responsibilities. Peter also gave us part of God's word, as we have noted already. 
but he is responsible not only for first and second Peter, for we know from church history that his teaching was the basis for Mark's gospel. Peter preached the gospel, and he has provided essential information about Jesus' life and ministry to the church. And so Peter had a key role, and we shouldn't diminish that because we want to um, avoid the teaching um, regarding the papacy. It's just like the Virgin Mary, you know. We, we, we don't want to pray to the Virgin Mary, but neither should we diminish her role Amen. as the mother of our Lord. Um, and neither should we diminish the fact that she was blessed. You know, that all people would call her blessed. Well, of course they would call her blessed. She gave birth to the Messiah. That's a, that's a blessing. And, um, and oftentimes as Protestants, we, to avoid the one extreme, we go to the other extreme. <laughs> and uh, so we don't want to do that with, with Mary, and we surely don't want to do that with Peter. Well, then secondly, let's consider those to whom Peter wrote. He says that they are the elect. And the emphasis of the verse really is on the word elect. It appears first in, in, the, in the verse, in the sentence. And I want you to know that this emphasizes the... I'm looking at you guys. I should be looking over here. <laughs> if I'm not looking down here, I'm looking over here. I'm not looking at you. But that really emphasizes the grace of God. It points to the fact that salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Peter indicates that their election is according to the foreknowledge of God. And that means not just that for God foreknew them in the sense that He knew that they would believe, and that's what a lot of people think. But no, He foreknew them in the sense that He loved them. You know, we might say it like this, that He's writing to those that God foreloved, right? You know, because the word know, when a man knows his wife, he just doesn't know her name, right? He doesn't just know that, um, that, uh, that she's there. He knows her intimately, closely. That's what it means. That means that he loves her. And um, I think that's what we need to understand about God foreknowing uh, these people and foreknowing us as well. But I want you to understand that that does not diminish the responsibility of man. And that's what a lot of people, again, they get sidetracked. Because we emphasize God's election and God's foreknowledge and God's predestination, that we are there by saying, okay, men have no responsibility at all. But they do. All men have a responsibility to, respond, to repent and believe the gospel. It's not because the gospel is not clear, though it is foolishness to people, but it's only foolishness to people because they hate God. Amen. You know, it's, so it's not that the gospel, and it's not that the invitation is insincere, like God is saying, all oh, repent and believe the gospel, and God's being insincere because He's really only going to bring those who um, are elect. Well, that's true, but it's not true for the reasons that people think. God is not being insincere. He's sincerely saying, repent and believe. But no one is going to repent and believe. Amen. That's the point. I think that we need to think about it in the light of Genesis chapter 6, because I think this helps us maybe understand it. 
In Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? That's, that's how God describes mankind in Genesis 6. And, and after the flood, God describes mankind in the same terms. The, 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 um, the thoughts of man's heart is only on evil continually. Before the flood, after the flood. So what happened with Noah? What, was he special? What, did he walk around and say, Hey, God, here I am. Don't pick, you know, don't send me, don't send the flood on me. No, what happened was that Noah, I mean, God regretted that he had made man on the earth and he grieved his heart and God's going to blot out everybody and everything that he created, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh, don't read that to mean Noah was looking for God's favor and found it. You know, it's not like Noah's looking for this. Like, where's where's God's favor around here? I I need some of it. He's he's not doing that. No, it's more it's passive. God showered favor upon Noah. He found it in the sense that it was it was given to him. And we should understood that God favored Noah with grace. That's what that means. That's the intention. God favored Noah. So, these people to whom Peter writes, their election is accomplished or made a reality by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit sets them apart as the recipients of God's grace. And it's only that grace that's going to change their hearts that is on evil continually. The gospel will continue to be foolishness to people because their hearts are evil. That's the thing that we've, I don't know, it seems that we've lost sight of that in modern evangelicalism. We've lost the concept that sin is really a reflection of an evil heart that rejects God at the get-go. It's not like people are walking around saying, oh, wow, you know, I want to, I want to find the Lord. The people don't do that. Amen. People say, I want to find my way. I want to do it my way. They sound like Frank Sinatra. Those of you who are younger, Frank Sinatra was old blue eyes. He was the guy that sang the song, I did it my way. Yes. You know, and now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. But friends, I'll make it clear. I'll make my case for which I'm certain. I've lived a life, you know. And what did he do? He did it his way. I did it my way. That's the way everybody thinks. In fact, that's the way that you think. Amen. You want the world your way. Yes. And I want want the world my way too. (laughs) You know what? I don't like to suffer. Amen. Paul, Peter says to these people, you need to suffer if it's God's will. Well, if it's God's will, maybe it's not their will. I mean, who, who really wants to suffer? You know, Jesus suffered the cross not because He said, oh, goody, let's do this. He suffered the cross because He saw the glory that was beyond that. And we suffer too because we see the glory that's beyond that. God wants us to get our eyes off of this world that is dying. Get your eyes off of death and put your eyes on life. And that's what so many people 
don't want to do. And so when we read about election, God's not being mean. He's saving people who are going, they're, they're all, they all want to jump off the cliff. It's like you've like you got the whole world standing on the edge of a cliff. They're all going to jump off, and the only way they're not going to jump off is God, if God pulls them away. So you say, well, why doesn't God pull them all the way? Well, because God is also a God of wrath. Amen. Okay, God is also a God of justice. That's, that's why it is grace that saves us. In other words, grace trumps justice in our... But it really doesn't. You see, because Christ endured the justice of God on our behalf. Yes. Christ endured Amen. the judgment that was due to me yes. at, on the cross. Amen. And so God is still just. And He's the justifier of those who believe. How does He do that? Because of Christ. That's why we need Christ. He's our only comfort in life and in death. And Peter's telling these folks, you know, you're going to suffer. Why are you going to suffer? Well, because you're a Christian. And if you don't like that, then the Christian life is either going to be hard on you or it's not going to be in you at all. Well, then we come finally then, and I I want you to, before I get to the last point, I want to point something out to you. Don't miss Peter's design. Notice this. Salvation is the work of the Trinity. Father, Mm -hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all in there. Without without God, all of them, all of them working together in this salvation of ours, um, we would not be saved. It's the work of the triune God. It's amazing. It really is. It's overwhelming. That brings us then to the final point that I want to bring to your attention. And I know we're only getting over a couple verses today, but I wanted to do this. I want you to notice the significance of Peter's epistle. Notice the locations of the elect to whom Peter writes. They live throughout what we would call modern Turkey. Now, in a more narrow sense, they may be residents of smaller geographic areas that are that go by that that name. Um, you read about that in Acts chapter sixteen, verse six. But I want you to notice something: that Paul and his who was it? Paul and Silas went through um, the area, the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And these are the words. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. Now Asia covered, was, was, the, was the name that covered all of those areas to whom Peter's writing. That was Asia. They were all part of Asia. Well, Paul is prevented from going to these places. So why? Well, Maybe Peter went to them. Um, obviously, the people are familiar with Peter. Uh, but uh, just to let you know where Pontius and Bithynia are, um, this comes from uh, Edmund Clowney's commentary on, on 1 Peter. He says, Pontius and Bithynia, are, they're on the shore of the Black Sea, so it'd be up in northern, the northern area of, Tur- of Turkey. And uh, they are named separately, although they had been joined into one Roman province. So Pontus and Bithynia are one pro-Roman province, but they're separated like that. 
And it has been suggested that Peter begins with Pontius and ends with Bithynia because he is thinking of the route that Silas or another messenger might take in delivering the letter. A traveler could start from Emesis at the eastern end of Pontus on the Black Sea and finish at Chalcedon in Bithynia. And from there he could cross over to Byzantium where ship passage could be found to Rome. So the geographical areas addressed include a fantastic conglomeration of territories, coastal regions, mountain ranges, plateaus, lakes, and river systems. Uh, the inhabitants were even more diverse. They, were, uh, they had different origins and ethnic roots and languages and customs and religions and political histories. So Peter's writing to a, a group of people like us. <laughs> Right? Yeah. If you trace, I mean, not right now, but if you trace this all back, right? Yeah. My, my heritage is split, so I'm a half a man. Half of me goes to Italy, and the other half goes to England. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and Daniel, he's Jewish, so he goes back to, he goes back to Israel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think he's probably uh, one of the priestly family. He's a Kohen, so that puts him in Jerusalem, right? I'm right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not right. And so the Brandon goes back to Minnesota. That's a country of its own. And, uh, <laughs> I'm in charge. <laughs> but you see, we're, that's the kind of folks that Peter's writing. We all have different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. You know? That's why I am a little plump, you know, because I have eaten Italian food my whole life. <laughs> A lot of pasta. And that grandmother that said, eat, eat, eat. You know, so, you know, so we all have these different, uh, different backgrounds. Well, Peter's writing to people like that. And uh, I want you to draw your attention to this, that Peter wrote a letter that would be read by more than one church. So it went all over the area, right? Um and how did they receive it? They received it as an apostolic letter. Mm. What does that mean? It was authoritative. Mm. When Peter wrote, he wrote as an apostle of Christ. He wrote, in fact, as the, the apostle that Christ chose first. He wrote as the apostle who was the rock upon which the church would be built, understanding it properly. He wrote as an apostle sent by Jesus to preach the gospel to all the world. He wrote authoritatively. And it would have been received in that way because, you see, in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter says, as he's writing about um, the letters of Paul, he says, and in them the apostle the Apostle Paul wrote some things that, were, that are hard to understand. And he said, and people twist them just like they do other scriptures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Later in church history, the church had to wrestle with the canon of scripture. And I want you to understand that the early church, very early on, already had the epistles of Paul, the epistles of Peter, in fact, most of our New Testament. There were some questionable books, for sure. James was questioned. 
Uh, Revelation was questioned for a while. So it wasn't that there weren't any questions of what made up the canon. But for the most part, the canon was accepted by the church. And when it was finally established, it was established because there were forgeries being sent around. You know, like you know, like Third Peter or the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas. Those were all things that were written much later, and they reflect a Gnostic mentality, which arose, which arose more than a hundred years after the New Testament, and so. The church had to come together because there are, there are all these voices. And so they had to establish what is the canon. And that's what they did. Amen. It necessitated the church to address the problem and determine the canon. And what was one of the criterion? Apple, um, ap, uh, apostolicity was one of the canons, of, was one of the criterion for the canon of the New Testament. Was it written by an apostle or was it written by a close associate of the, of the apostle? So the book of Hebrews was questioned. Why? Well, because we couldn't prove it was actually written by Paul. But it was accepted. Why? Because they, they understood that it reflected Pauline theology. You know, the gospel of Mark. Who's Mark? Well, John Mark. When did, well, what is his gospel? Well, church history attested the fact that Peter gave the very structure and all the stories for the Gospel of Mark. And it, was a, it really represents, if, if, we, if I understand it right, if you compare the preaching of Peter with the Gospel of Mark, you have an outline of the Gospel of Mark. So, the canon was determined. Doctrine and conformity to what had been received was another important criterion. And so the epistle of Peter... Um, is authoritative and the significance of this epistle is that it is part of scripture and it's been received as such and we accept it as the very word of God. Well then, to conclude, we're going to go through Peter. Um, he's, going to, he's going to be teaching us how to proclaim the gospel in the face of cultural rejection. And I want to go through it because I want I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to continue, so I want you to, I want to prepare you and myself because we may face oppression and maybe persecution sooner or later. I was impressed by the churches in China because when their pastors were arrested, the churches continued because the elders took over what was needed what needed to be done they took over the preaching they took over the teaching they took over everything and when they needed to split up and to go into house churches the elders knew exactly what to do and the people knew exactly what to do and i want you to know exactly what to do should this happen because it seems as though that's what's on the that's what's that's what's that's what that's what the rumbles that we keep hearing in the United States and in all through the West. But I want to say this, the gospel will prevail whether we're whether we whether there's persecution or whether there's not. The church will prevail because the gates of hell cannot stand against her. Let's let's pray. Blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have not left us without 
with that direction in for our lives and for the church. And there's no reason for us to fear, though fear is beginning to grow among Christians. But there's no reason to fear because you are on our side. And even if we stand alone, if we stand with you, we're the majority. And so, our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into the knowledge of your word. We pray that you would grant us courage as we live as exiles and sojourners in this world. And help us to remember every moment that, we are, that our citizenship is not here. The world may get better. Who knows? I don't know. Post-millennialists may be right. I, I hope they are, to tell you the truth. But in the end, it's always going to get worse before it gets better. In the end, it will take Christ to come and, and change things. It will be only in the resurrection. It will be only when the new world order comes that everything will be right and righteousness will prevail. So, Father, keep our eyes fixed on that, on the glory that is to come. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the suffering and the shame of the cross. Help us to endure the suffering and shame that we might go through in His name. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank all of you who are with us.